before we start, if you're not driving and it's safe to do so, maybe go on your podcast app or whichever platform you're on and follow the show. It helps the show out and tells you when new episodes are available, which is every two weeks. My guest is an amazing photographer whose portraits capture the characters that are inside of us. They're the type of person who shows true empathy and genuine thoughtfulness that always warms you when you see it done. They graciously sat down with me to have an open and honest conversation on their experience with cancer, loss, and their hard-earned insights on mental health and gratitude. Just like on most of the episodes of this podcast, names and identifiers have been removed for the confidentiality of guests. This episode features discussions on self-harm and suicide. Be gentle with yourself and feel free to stop the show at any time or skip this episode entirely. Now, on to the interview. What was the general story of like the diagnosis? And I remember I was like on a, on a photo shoot at the clients and we were working away and I just like, I couldn't place it, but I didn't feel well. And I had this weird, like salivating sensation in the back, like upper, like, like in my cheeks, but just like not in my cheeks, you know what I mean? Mm. And it was just like, like when you think about really sour food and you get that reaction in your mouth, Mm -hmm. that's what it felt like. And my stomach felt weird and I was like a little bit bloated and I was like, oh, whatever. And so I kept having to take breaks from shooting. And finally I said to the client, I was like, I'm really sorry. Like, this is, a, this is the first time I've had to do this in like 15 years of doing this. Mm-hmm. Or well, actually back then, I guess it would have been like 10 years of doing this. And I was like, I, can we reschedule? And they were super understanding and they're like, yeah, absolutely. So we packed up. I went home. I I felt terrible two or three days probably. And then went away. Hmm. And it was hmm. fine. And because I'm stupid, I didn't go to the doctor. Because I was just like, oh, it's just something I ate or it's something whatever. When the feeling returned, he modified his diet, which seemed to work for a little bit. But then the feeling came back and then went away and then came back again. And finally, the pain returned so badly that he went to the emergency room and his Doctors immediately thought that he had a significant blockage, so he was rushed in for a scope. When I woke up back in the like the room, they like wheeled me into a separate room, which was weird. Mm. And then uh, they said, like, yeah, it's it's a cancerous mass. And um, I said, cool. How long do I have? Well, and she's like, oh, we don't know that. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, we don't we don't know. We have to send it away. We know it's cancer. But, or we know it's cancerous or whatever, Mm -hmm. but we don't know what stage, we don't know what type, we don't know anything. And in my head, I don't know why I had it, that like they'd immediately take like a little snip, throw it under a microscope and be like, you have stage 2CT4 adenocarcinoma. Well, I think that's a fairly like reasonable assumption of like what we get told about like medicine. It's like, it's so advanced, you know? So it's like you go in there and you, you like... This, I think our assumptions of it are like, yeah, you, they can, they can fix anything. And it's like, it's not like that. It's slow. It's tedious. It's, it's really difficult also then to, for the patient to get like, for you to be like, it's cancer. And they're like, you're like, oh, okay. So like more info, like, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, house, house ruined it for me right. forever. You're just <laughs> like, man, in 60 minutes or 44 yeah. minutes, because yeah. we had ads back then. 
this man could solve the most complex problems. You're telling me it's cancer, but you don't know what it is. Now I'm just sitting here like, am I going to fucking die? And they don't know what stage, they don't know this, they don't know that. So now I'm like, okay. And they roll me back into my like little room. And now I have to call my mom. Wow. And I was like, I can't do this because we lost my dad to cancer like yeah. a few years before, six years before. No. Jesus. It's 10 still, years yeah. before. Yeah. Um, but still, 10 yeah. years, loss of a parent, it's too close. Felt like two days really. Um, but yeah, so I had to call my mom, uh, but without any real information. Right. So how do you do, how do you do that? Do you sit on it and yeah. just be like, um, she can find out when I know more. That's kind of like not the cool thing to do. So I did something even worse. I called my brother mm. and I was like, Hey man, uh, I have cancer and I need you to call mom and I need you to tell her because I can't deal with this. And so him and I chatted for a little bit again. He was like, do you know what stage, you know? And I was like, no, no, they literally just told me and then went off to someone else and left me just sitting here being like, do I have six weeks? Do I have six months? Do I have six years? Or is it just like a quick little snap of a of a finger and a little operation and then I'm out? So at this point there, it was almost like it was almost worse knowing without knowing. So for me to not have those answers was really frustrating. But then you're here like sitting there having to process, like not even processing, I bet, like just beginning the process and being like, oh man, I can't call mom. Yeah. And I think like, I think that's such a smart thing to actually, you know, and to do to reach out and be like, I need to tell someone, Yeah. but I can't be the one right now. And to like offload that responsibility because it's like, Hey, I've, I've kind of got something going on right now yeah. that I got to deal with. Yeah. And that's what I said to my, my younger brother. I was like, I'm really sorry to do this to you, man, but, uh, I can't talk to her. Like mm. I can't, like, I'm not like, not like she's not approachable, but I just didn't have the answers that I knew she would ask. And I was still processing. And I was also like, well, fuck, am I going to die? Like, it, like in your brain, mm. you have no idea, right? Like my dad was diagnosed and, and he died within, I feel like a year and a half, oh. but I really would have to look cause it seemed like he got diagnosed and he was dead like five days later. Mm -hmm. But it really was like, it was a stretch. Like they moved from Ontario to here for the Tom Baker. I left my job in the Bahamas, moved back here uh, to help and like took him to chemo. And so I was in school for, oh, it was longer than 18 months. Cause he was, he died like the week before I graduated state. So he would have made it like two and a half years then. Mm -hmm. um, but in my head, it was like, well, how bad is mine? What is this? And, right. you know, so to be left in that limbo is thanks, Dr. House. And then yeah. what, within like a day or two or like within hours, you're getting moved to hours. Like, yeah. Hours. Oh yeah. yeah. They yeah. were, um, cause it's quite a serious thing for being backed up for six days and, and having that. Yeah. Like you said, it was so, they told me it was so close. Like if I had waited another day, I probably wouldn't have been around yeah. because I would have torn and then mm -hmm. flooded and then sepsis and then and there's just nothing but yeah. done. So yeah, right into the OR room wow. and, uh, just flopped up onto a table and they just rolled me onto my side, gave me a, a local. So I was still like completely awake. Um, mm. and chatting with them. And I said to, 
during um, the surgery. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I had said to the nurse, I was like, what, what happens if I have to go? Like I haven't gone in mm-hmm. almost a week. And she's like, you just go. This is what happens. And I was like, yeah, but <laughs> there's people down there. Right. And she's like, no, 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 just, just go. And I honestly, like, I can't remember if I like fell asleep while they were doing it or how long it was or whatever. But I remember feeling like the relief when mm. the stent was yeah. put in and then yeah. like opened. And I, I said, I got to go. And she just, <laughs> just go. And, uh, man, I like painted those <laughs> three surgeons and then they were amazing and they cleaned me up like an adult baby and, uh, <laughs> changed, oh changed all my stuff. And they just threw me on a gurney and they just sent me back down to South health. I think they kept me for like another 24 hours for like observation and stuff, right? right? Like post-surgery, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then life was quote unquote normal until I got the call from an oncologist's office that was like, Hey, we're going to be your oncology team. You need right. to come in. And they told me stage two C T four adenocarcinoma and that, uh, they could get me booked in for like five weeks later, wow. uh, which is, you know, a really long time, yeah. uh, after you've been told you have cancer to get this, uh, tumor out. And how long was it like after you were like post-op, you leave to, to get that call from that team? How long did that take? Uh, I think it was like a week and a half. That's also a long time. That's really long. Yeah. You don't want to do anything in that time. And I didn't want to tell anyone. So only my family knew and my partner at the time, she obviously knew because she's the one that drove me to the hospital. Mm. Couple of really close friends. And then that was it. I was like, I don't want I don't want anyone to know, man. Like if it's a really bad diagnosis, then I'll tell people. Or if it's just like, oh, it's stage one, we're just gonna snip it out and you don't even have to have chemo. Then it's just like, oh, okay, it's just like a blip. But I wanted to wait. I also didn't want uh my friends of uh, woo to be like, you should try turmeric yeah. and you should try this. And you're shocked. just like, eat a fucking bag of dicks, man. No, no. Yeah. Science. I'm really sorry. I'm like a yeah. I heavily lean into uh science over, right. over woo. Uh, I mean, shit, I'm still here today because of it on multiple, uh, accounts, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So met with the oncology team. They said, we're going to go laparoscopically because of the size of the tumor, yada, yada, yada. It's great. Um, and then we got closer to the surgery date and I went into the hospital, um, to have a meeting with them and they're like, okay, so there is a chance that we have to remove, uh, mm-hmm. enough of your colon that you're going to need an ileostomy bag, not a colostomy bag. Mm-hmm. So that for anyone that doesn't know is a bag that sits higher up before your poop gets processed into solid poop it's liquid poop uh mm-hmm. and the ileostomy bag sits up higher and so uh, i had to take a course actually like I, I had to sit on an information center or session uh at oh. the this little like center in the hospital uh, for life with an ileostomy bag and because our healthcare system well i mean it's more broken now but was still broken then um, having that bag removed was considered like elective surgery level. So sometimes you'd have your bag for like a year instead of just like the six months or whatever, um, uh, because they're just like, Oh, it's not super important for you to you just poop like a normal human it. being. Yeah. Yeah. To so have any, I like normal senior. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was like really worried. Cause I was like, I don't want a poop bag. Like that's cause they sit up high. Right. Yeah. And it's not like a, a colostomy sits a little bit lower. You can hide it a little bit more. Uh, it's easier to deal with because it's more solidified. Um, 
you know, the ileostomy, it's like warm minestrone. It's, it sounds like there's this like contrast between being like, you have these moments where you're like, what is this? And you're faced with this like question of like, am I going to survive? Am I going to live? And then, then there's these other questions of like, well, I don't want an ileostomy back. And it sounds like, you know, I think you can be really like harsh about that and be like, why are you worrying about this? But it's like, no, there's still that consideration to make of like, what is my quality of life going to be? And that like, kind of like string of like hope to, to, to see what it's going to be like afterwards. Yeah, I think, I think it's honestly, it's just like shitty privilege. It was like, I don't want the inconvenience of an ileostomy bag. That's stupid. And in, in the meantime, you're like, but you're alive, you dumbass. You're right. Like, yeah. But, uh, poop into a bag. Like, yeah. but you're alive. Is that but I'm going to poop into a bag. So but, it's but just it, like in your head, you have to process. You're like, yeah. I'm alive, but I'm pooping into a bag. Right. So, it's so just, you're just, are you like, do you have days where you're like going, like seeing that like back and forth that you're doing or? Oh yeah. 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 I was pissed. I was like, I, I don't. So they like show you how to change it. They show you what happens if it goes wrong. They tell you like, you can go, you can go into a hot tub, but there's like a thing you have to put over it. And they can, I was like, wow, all this shit. And I was just like, I mean, I don't know, hot tub. Nobody needs to see this right. shirtless. Right. But it was still like one of those like, well, what if I want a hot tub? Yeah. <laughs> it's so stupid because you're just, you're literally like, I have, I, ooh, I have this like, <laughs> this tumor that is trying to end my life. And I'm concerned about the once every two years I get in a hot tub and right. be like, well, what if, what if I have an opportunity to get in a hot tub, but I have a poop bag. And then on top of that, you're concerned that you're even, you're like getting upset that you've been having these thoughts like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you get like i was getting mad at myself because it's just like and i'll tell you what like i'll skip ahead momentarily here you know what gets those uh those thoughts right the fuck out of your head Hmm. going into the cancer ward at the tom baker and seeing like kids on like Hmm. chemo ivs and seeing uh, husbands with their wives that are hooked up and every, and you're just like, Nope, never mind. It's cool. Uh, whatever it takes. And I mean, I went through that with my dad, right? Yeah. I sat in there and, uh, there were some horrendous experiences, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about this little Ziploc bag that gets hooked to my, to my skin at that point. But I think it was also like, it was an outlet to be mad at something. Right. Cause I had no answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, they said like worst case scenario, uh, if laparoscopic failed, uh, they would just open me like zipper me basically wow. from uh, reproductive to sternum and then do it that way. Uh, and this is all in the same surgery. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they weren't sure they thought they could do it laparoscopically based on like my scans and where the tumor was and whatever. Um, now rewind that it has been five weeks since the stent went in and when they opened me up, uh, surgery was like surprisingly like the only, the only weird thing about the surgery day, like I wasn't really thinking much of it (laughs) until I was in the gown and I was laying in bed and I got my ex to take a photo and I just gave like this dumb fucking thumbs up. Like it mattered. And then as I was laying there, I was like, fuck, what if this is the last thing I remember? And then I like, don't make it out of surgery. I mean, we're talking, we're talking like they do, they could do a hundred of these surgeries a day and it doesn't, it's not a thing. But in my head for a split second, I was like, what if I die on the table? Nah, it's not going to happen. But then I was worried about it. And then I went in and the anesthesiologist was talking to me about my tattoos and I was like, this is so stupid. She's just trying to make me feel comfortable. <laughs> and I was out. <laughs> and then I woke up and uh, 
I apparently immediately like started tapping my body yeah. and I looked down and there was no bag attached to me. Right. And I looked at the nurse because she came out while my ex got her over when I was waking up. And uh, I looked at the nurse and I, I said, no bag. And she said, no, no bag. And apparently I said, fuck yeah. And then passed back out. <laughs> Uh, that's the only thing I was concerned right. about. Like, did they get it all? Is the tumor yeah. gone? Was yeah, everyone's yeah, yeah. like, oh, no poop bag? Sweet. Right. <laughs> like, that was my immediate reaction. So huge. Was so huge. no poop bag. I can go hot tubbing. So it's actually kind of cool. There's like, there's almost no visible scarring unless you look wow. close. But I do have a massive amount of scar tissue on one side. But um, he said, you know, we were able to get it all. However, hmm. in the five weeks between the stent. And the surgery, when stent pushed my tumor out of the way, I don't know, made it mad. So it grabbed onto a bunch of extra shit oh, instead wow. of just like staying inside my colon. So it grabbed onto my stomach and other soft tissue and uh, attached itself to my vas deferens and other small tissue or soft tissue. And so he said, uh, before finding all of this out, he said, do you have kids? And I said, no. I said, do you want kids? I was like, nope. And he's like, okay. So he walks me through everything, walks me through the tumor, says, you know, we we had to cut it away from your vas deferens. So, you know, there's a chance you're less fertile than right. you were. And uh, I looked at him and I was like, oh, man, you couldn't finish the job while you were in there? <laughs> and he looked at me he's like, excuse me? And I was like, you can't – can we go back in? Can you just – can you make it a hundred percent? Can I get a two in one? Yeah. And he just, he literally looked at me. He was like, this is not the way I saw this conversation going. And I was right. like, man, I've been like, I was going to get a vasectomy like a year ago. And I just, just like, just didn't get around to it. I just right. couldn't commit to the time. Right. And I know it's only like, it's like a day surgery now, but anyway, wow. doesn't matter. I never made time for it. And I have this opportunity and it like, had we known with like more recent scans or whatever had, had it right. shown and they would have been like, Oh, there's a chance you're not going to have kids because, or there's mm -hmm. a chance you're going to be less right. potent. Less for a and, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I just would have been like, motherfucker, take it all. Yeah. Snip it, clip it, get rid of it. Make it so it can never be reattached. Right, 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 right. Um, but I think he was real nervous because he's he said he's had like he's had to have those conversations yeah. and sometimes it results in the throwing of things and people getting wow. very upset with them. Yeah. Even though the cancer's gone, they now can't have kids or there's it's they're less likely talk. to have kids. Yeah, that's yeah, it's huge. And for me, my main concern was like no poop bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just kind of Recovered for a bit. And then once uh, I, I met with my oncologist, he said, basically, like, you're, we're going to put you on chemo and you'll start the first week of February. So I basically had like a month and a half, like five weeks, six weeks hmm. um, between surgery and, and my first round of chemo. And then oddly enough, they gave me the opportunity to choose. So they said with the type of cancer that I had, I had two choices. I had like intravenous, which would be at the Baker Center or Holy Cross, I think okay, is the yeah. other one. Um, and they said, you know, you go in uh, for a day every however many days and we just run a bag of <laughs> poison through you. Mm -hmm. um, but that would limit my ability to travel. That would limit my ability to work as far as my brain was processing uh, right. all of this, right? Because right. like my dad was stage four and he was still working and I was just like, oh, stage two C. So I guess I'll just have a regular job. No, yeah. fuck no. And the other option was oral. And a lot of times the pills are not covered. 
uh, depending on what they are. These ones happen to be covered by Alberta Health because as an entrepreneur slash freelance worker, uh, I don't have any health coverage at all. So um, these pills were $8,000 a month uh, that was covered by AHS, which is pretty awesome. Um, But he said, uh, he said, you know, there are side effects with the pills. Like it's not just like popping Tylenol at home and being like, woo, there goes my life. Mm -hmm. Um, There were lots of crazy side effects. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, whatever, just give me the pills. I want to do this at home. I don't want to be like, I sat in the, like in the ward with my dad when he was on chemo and I had dealt with, that's a tough scene to be in. And it's very draining. Like mm-hmm. even as a visitor, it's draining. So as an actual patient getting, you know, toxic chemicals <laughs> just pushed right into your veins, uh, it's even more stressful. So I was just like, nope, I want to be alone in my house taking these giant horse size pills. Like were you ha- experiencing any like mental side effects? I've heard like some, some there, there can be like a lot of psychological side effects with chemo as well. Yeah, it was like, I was definitely like more fragile. I think I'm more fragile now as a human being in general from that and like a lot of other stuff and just processing and and learning and sort of adapting and and accepting like who I am as a person, but I definitely was unstable uh, through, through chemo. Like I I definitely got um, more sensitive to mood shifts. Um, Like your own mood shifts and, or yeah, mine and my partners at the time and shit we'd watch on TV. Like I would just, I'd put on the most senseless comedic stuff and like not pay attention, but I couldn't watch real movies. Like Mm -hmm. if I watched the green mile, I probably would have blown my brains out. Yeah. Um, so you just throw on stupid uh, like forgetting Sarah Marshall or something right. dumb where you're just like, <laughs> Oh, I can't laugh. It hurts. Right. Something um, with no real like consequences or zero substance. To, yeah. Nothing. Well, no. I mean, it's, YouTube. Like, it's not that you had like good substance in your life, it, but like you had a lot of it. You had yeah. a lot of like heavy stuff. And what I w- like, what is the experience like of like going through chemo after having accompanied your dad going through chemo? Yeah, it was, it was weird. Uh, especially cause like to me and I mean, I don't think my mom would notice this, but I think to me when I like tried to talk to her about it, she just never thought of it being as serious. And it definitely like was not like my dad was stage four in super aggressive chemo. Then they put him on like a, like a drug trial and it killed him. Like he wow. was allergic to the drug in the 30 days it takes for that drug to get out of your system to go back on chemo. Too late, stage four, man. 30 days without treatment is a death sentence. Oh my so gosh. he died not long after that. Um, so I don't think she ever saw it as severe, but I was still like, you know, it, survival rates, whatever. It's different for everybody, for every type of cancer and every like <laughs> over your overall body health prior to and sure. during and, and whatever. But uh, yeah, it was, it was weird because I think my dad was so strong when he was going through it. Like I never really thought it was that bad. Like I knew it was bad and I knew like him and I had a conversation once and you know, he had said like, I don't know how much longer I can do this because he was, it was just ripping his body apart. And me, like I had stupid things like by let's say month three Mm -hmm. for argument's sake, I would be holding a mug and then the mug would fall out of my hands because I thought I was holding it. Right. But in fact, I wasn't because I had zero sensation in my fingers. So 
I was losing my fingerprints. Uh, I was losing, like I was getting tingling in my fingers and toes and my feet. And there were a lot of side effects from the, the pill type. Mm-hmm. And, uh, based on like chemo's targeted to, as far as I know, like your cell growth rate. So it just targets cells that grow at that speed, which is why right. more aggressive cancer patients lose their hair because that's the fastest growing, mm-hmm. um, Mm-hmm. molecule cell cell cells. we'll yeah, call it a cell yeah, yeah, yeah. um so that's where your hair falls out because the chemo is like ah fuck these fast moving cells and you're like no nah, we're just hair but they're yeah. falling out Not so us. for yeah. me i mean i thought based on uh movies and my dad's experience that i was gonna lose my hair and i had a giant beard so i didn't want my beard to fall out so i fucking shaved it the one day and i went to my oncology appointment i was like i got rid of my beard i'm not having a patchy beard and he's like you're not gonna lose your hair i was like what I grown that beard for like a year. And he's like, yeah, you're not going to, it's not going to be your hair. He's like, you have fingerprint issues because your skin cells on your fingertips and feet grow at the same speed as uh, what type of cancer you had. And you'll notice this and you'll notice that and blah, blah, blah. Like I got hit in the shin with a little piece of shelf that fell that would have normally like uh, on any other day of the week, on any other year of my life, I would have bled for like five minutes and then you would have never known. I still have the scar. Uh, wow. Like, what is it? Five, six, six years later, it looks like I got hit by a car and, and it was just like a little Ikea shelf. And it's because my skin was so thin and so brittle and just like, just disgusting how, uh, I could like rub my fingers together and just watch my like skin come off. And the tingle is like, if you ever get your fingers so cold and they start to warm back up, like almost right. frostbite and you get yeah. that tingle, that's what it was full time. So sometimes I'd be holding something and it would, the sensation would be that I was holding it, but I just watch it drop out of my hand and be like, oh, well, fuck, there goes another mug. Um, so I used to have to start putting my hands into the mugs to know that I was holding it. I used to keep track. Like I kept a, I kept a video diary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like the idea behind me trying to keep that was like on bad days, I could show myself the video on a good day and, mm. and or like on a good day, I could show myself the bad. Day. So I could reflect on days that were different from that day and know that like this wasn't the worst day. Mm. Um, or if I was having a bad day that wasn't a real bad day, I could watch one of those videos and be like, nope, that was a bad day. Right. You know, and then the good day reminders were like, oh no, there are, there are better days. So, um, I used to keep a video, uh, like a diary, just selfies. Yeah. I just fucking talk to my phone. Uh, I still have some of them and I, I watched one, I don't know, a few months ago. I think, uh, it was tough to watch yeah. and which is surprising yeah. because like I watched it a little while, like, you know, I, I watched them on and off like every once in a while over the last few years. And you're just like, Oh yeah, whatever. And then for whatever reason now I watch it, I'm like, that sucked a lot. I forgot how much that sucked. And I think that's because I've grown as a person and I'm happier now. And I'm like, nah, yeah. And your brain kind of like trauma blocks how bad things were. And you're just like, no, it wasn't that bad. It was the flu that was a year long. It was like my mom. Like it's a a flu. Trauma of like having to watch your, like your, you know, your son, like face a super difficult thing. And then like that your partner had just faced. Yeah. And then, but like, how do you process that? And like, it's like, he was sick. It was the flu. Yeah. It basically. Yeah. You know, and then that's how, that's a coping strategy. Yeah. Right? It was just stage two C. It wasn't a real risk. Right. Like right, right, right. Oh, they're putting me on the heaviest dose of chemo they can yeah. for my weight so- or for my yeah. weight. Yeah. So I did, 
a lot of blood work and a lot of tests every every week. I came to know just about everybody in each of the like places I had to go for my tests and stuff, and everyone was lovely and it was great. And it was super shitty to see other people going through the same thing and mm-hmm. uh, not ha- maybe having um, the support system or like family or whatever. And it sucks, man. Yeah. But uh, like month five of chemo, I had lost those like 47 yeah. pounds. And uh, there was, um, we'll call it an oversight. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a mistake, an oversight in how much I was given uh, for chemo that next round. And it was not for someone that was 47 pounds lighter. Um, it was for someone that was zero pounds lighter. And uh, it was for your original weight, basically. Yeah. 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 So instead of it being like 100% of capacity of what your body could handle. I don't know. I think I did the math once. It was like 118% or some, some close to that. Um, but, uh, I OD'd on chemo. You OD'd on chemo. Not a fucking thing you ever want to do. Um, it's just like, I can't even just, I couldn't describe it then. And I can't describe it now other than your body is trying to tear itself apart from the inside. That was the only way I could describe it to the ER people. And I didn't even know what was going on. I just Mm. got rushed to the ER at South health. And I was like, I'm currently on chemo. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, I am in excruciating pain. And anyway, they uh, brought me again. I got to skip the line, which was great. So they throw me into the back. Um, they're doing scans, everything, tests, whatever, whatever the fuck they can, they can do. Right. Cause they're checking markers they're checking, uh, I guess like your blood toxicity with sure, the chemo yeah. levels and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, the morphine hadn't really done enough to take the edge off. I was like, hello. Um, I still want to smash my head into that wall. Like I cannot, I feel everything. Can you just put me down? And so they said, we'll get authorization or whatever. We'll check with the doctor, whatever she said, and uh, we'll get you something stronger. And she came back uh, a little while later with fentanyl and uh, she just pushes it into the IV thing. And I know it's not instantaneous, but it literally felt like before she was even done pushing that needle, I was just this <laughs> like goo filled skin bag. Like it was just immediately like, Oh, I feel nothing. Whoa. And so I just like, melted into the bed and came to a while later they held me for mm, like over a day like maybe 30 we'll say 36 hours for argument's sake um but yeah it was the toxicity levels were crazy high for like what they should be for my chemo so they figured there was like a little bit of a miscalculation yeah so i had to take some time off of chemo uh for the toxicity to, to get back down so i basically like skipped around sort of but not really um they just delayed when my next round started and then they reduced my round uh significantly uh, but i had to go on it for longer so less at a time but for a longer period of time just to be safe hey are you are you enjoying chemo and do you want to use this as a do you want to use this as a party drug yeah it's not that but also um yeah it looks like you're having a fun time so why don't we keep this going on a little bit? Yeah. It's my, not what you want to hear. My paper bags were a little smaller and a little lighter. They fit yeah. into my motorcycle seat much better. Right. Because um, this was summer. So I was stupid and riding a motorcycle when I felt like I could. Uh, don't when you're like 
like, you know, you realize like how slow your reaction Whoa, time yeah. is and everything. But I just like wanted to feel normal once in a while. So I'd like. Sense of control. Yeah. yeah literally. I couldn't go for long motorcycle rides, but yeah. I would focus and I would ride from New Brighton <laughs> to the Holy Cross. And I would have my meeting and I would take my little paper bag of chemo and I would put it in the tail of the motorcycle and then I would focus to get home. Wow. And I was just like, yeah, it was totally fine. I look back on it now. I was like, man, my reflex, I should have died. My reflexes are shit. Your body shit. You're weak as fuck. Like there's no way I would have been able to stop that motorcycle right. from going right, right, over, right. Yeah. let alone like your response time. And yeah. my fingers, you got to remember are tingling all the time. And I'm holding on to handlebars like a dumb yeah. dumb. And that's all your controls. Yeah. yeah. But there were certain things that I needed as an escape. And that motorcycle had always been, that escape mm -hmm. um for me motorcycles association with like being maimed and dying and all that kind of stuff where you're like i'm associating with that every day so every day yeah um how, how are you yeah how are you like how did your perspective on like death and dying during that time and and now how has that like shifted yeah or, that's that's interesting because like when I was in chemo, there were days where I was like, oh my God, I want to die. This is the worst I've ever felt. Just let me die. So I understand now, or at that point, when my dad is like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit, I get that now. But then you have good days and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to set and I'm going to help on a friend. And um, <laughs> I couldn't uh, I couldn't afford my anti-nausea pill, nausea pills because they were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Oh. So I got a medical weed card <laughs> and right. uh, the doctor that I met with because my GP wouldn't give me the prescription. Um, I met with this other doctor and he was like, all right, so you feel like you need a medical marijuana card. Why is that? And I was like, stage two C cancer. I'm in going through chemo. He's like, right. Uh, I'm going to give you 155 grams a month. It's the legal <laughs> limit. And I was like, whoa, man, I don't like, I just need something to take the edge off. And he's like, 155 grams is the legal limit. That is what you, that's a third of a pound, man. Yeah. Who smokes a third of a other than Willie Nelson, who smokes a third of a pound a month? Like it's a massive amount, but holy shit, did it help? Mm. And uh, it would help put me in a better like headspace if I was getting anxious or feeling shitty uh, about a lot of that stuff. And so it it really helped, and it allowed me to sort of function as a human being. Some days, like I'd go out for an hour or two of the house, someone would take me off, and I would just bring this stupid little vape pen mm. uh, with the like bowl packed with some CBD that would like settle my guts because the chemo was so bad. Um, and yeah, I think like looking back on those situations and adapting and figuring it out and just trying to survive, you have this, like, I want to live hmm. in a way that I have no regrets. So, you know, I, um, I, um, if we like, Fast forward, uh, chemo ends fine yeah. in remission. I'm getting tested a whole bunch. They give me the all clear. Um, I don't know what that would have been like almost a year later. I'm like in the oh. full clear. And so <laughs> I sold my house. I donated all my furniture uh, to like a women's shelter. Uh, I bought a slide in camper for my truck and I was just like, fuck it. I'm going on the road. 
And oh. then uh, I just decided I was going to take the money from the house because I had been barely surviving for those right. like two years. Like I could barely pay my bills. I couldn't do anything because I couldn't work. And then when you don't work as a freelancer, your clients have to move on to get services right. from other places. And so uh, I was going to have to rebuild my business again. And I didn't want that to be in Calgary. So I left and uh, I was gone for um, – three and a half years, I guess, but I would come oh. back to work a little bit and then try and build a business somewhere else and didn't really work out. I lived on a sailboat for over two years and kind of did that and was just kind of like living like, this is great. This is, this is awesome. And then <laughs> I realized that I, the living situation I was in with the person I was in, I was unhappy. And, uh, I joked with a friend uh, about it. I was like, could you imagine I fucking beat cancer? I'm in remission right. and I kill myself. <laughs> like well, how unfair is that to anyone that doesn't beat cancer? Yeah. I beat it and then take my own life. Like that's right. Dude. Like how, what was your friend's reaction to that? They're like, um, are you being serious? And I was like, yes. Yeah. I was like, mm -hmm. I am, I'm done. I'm like, I'm over it. Uh, I had like, uh, I had like picked a spot. I had picked a day. I had picked everything. I had like, uh, I just kind of had it all set. And then I was sitting there and, uh, and I was like, fuck, this would wreck my mom and my brother. And then I was like, eh. I fought for like a year and a half and I beat this cancer and maybe it's just the situation that I'm in that I don't like. Maybe it's not like hopeless. Maybe this. And so anyway, I just <laughs> sat there for a while and, uh, chickened out, uh, or delayed, we'll say. And, uh, and then I was like, okay, so I'm going to try and change my situation first. And if I change my situation and it helps, it's the right answer. And, uh, and so I was just like, all right. So I made like a very severe change, uh, in my life. I left the boat. I, uh, changed my life, moved back to Calgary, started building my business again, started hanging around with, um, like more positive influences in my life. And, uh, it was just like, holy shit. Is this really all it took it was like a, like a massive change in, helping me realize that that route was not the route that I had to go down. Now I'm not saying that I instantly like I moved back to Calgary and then I stopped thinking it's about not a it. montage. Yeah. It yeah. just wasn't every day trying to like come up with a reason not to. Right. Uh, instead it was like once a week kind of like, Oh no, things are okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, you talk to someone about it and you get help and you deal with it. And, uh, I have, uh, phenomenal support system here with a couple of really close friends and uh, some other friends that have gone through similar things and um you know like having access to real help um was like a massive thing and uh i think it's it's interesting to me because <laughs> you you go from being worried about a poop bag uh, to being in chemo, to wanting to die because you don't want to do that, to being in remission to, I had two other scares from the time I was in remission. One, um, 
I had to go in for a mammogram because I had like a lump. Mm. Um, and now breast cancer is super rare in men, but it does happen. Um, to any woman that has ever had a mammogram, I don't know how you do it. Um, mm. That was excruciating. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got the all clear from that. And then just uh, like shit, man, last late last summer, I was getting these like crazy pains in my leg and uh, got some scans and some ultrasounds and, and some other stuff. And my doctor was like, well, there's a chance that, you know, the cancer could be back in this section. Right. And uh, so I had like a meltdown um, at my uh, girlfriend's place. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I come all this way and I yeah. like reevaluate and I adapt and I'm happier than I've been. And I have a different outlook and a more positive outlook. And this shit is going to come back and get me now. Yeah. I was so, I was so mad, mm -hmm. so mad. And so her and I talked about it for a little while. And then I was like, I should call my mom. Mm. And so I called her, I told her, uh, she was calmer than I thought she would, she would be, but maybe this was just the flu version 2.0. We had all just survived two years sure. of COVID. So what's a little hip cancer? You'll be fine. Or, or she's um, realizing what you need. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. Probably more of that. Um, and then, you know, I told my brother and, uh, it, it was the same, like when we, you know, I'm like, fuck final man, they're trying to get me in on a mm -hmm. scan and the scan, like the soonest scan they could get me or the earliest scan they could get me was like almost a month away. And I was like, you fucking kidding me? Like last time that five weeks meant that this tumor grabbed onto my stomach, my right. vas deferens and a bunch right. of soft tissue. Now it's in my hip. What and is it doing it, now? Yeah, yeah. Like if it gets into like if it metastasizes or ends up in my lymph nodes or yeah. whatever. Cause I was also having like swollen lymph nodes, mm. um, in other areas. And, uh, so I was pissed and my mom <laughs> was like, how much is the scan? And I was like, I don't fucking know. So she's like, call around. So I called a few places that do private, uh, private CTs and, uh, I called her back and I was like, it's $900. She's like, I'll transfer you the money. Right. Go. And I was like, what? And she's like, I'll pay for it. I was like, you're not fucking paying for it. I'll pay, I'll pay for my own scan. <laughs> you know, I don't I'm, need lunch I'm, money. Yeah, I'm like, I'm 43 years old. <laughs> I'll pay for my own scan. Uh, I could not afford that scan at the time. But, um, anyway, I got, I literally got a call the next day and they're like, there's a cancellation. Can you come tomorrow? And I was like, fuck oh. yes. And so I went in. They did a whole bunch of uh, like ultrasound and a CT and an X-ray and like I got the like diamond level treatment right. there. I think because they realize like uh, oh shit, this is a cancer survivor and this literally could be cancer 2.0 here. Mm. Um, so they, this is this is through the public system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did not have right. to take the nine hundred bucks from right. my mommy. Right, right. <laughs> Dearest good. mommy, can I have scan money? <laughs> you should have just been. I still, yeah. I still need. I it. need that scan. <laughs> I need that scan. What's yeah. that new watch? What? Yeah, yeah. It came free with a CT scan. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bogo thing. These private uh, clinics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was left stuck to the MRI machine. Yeah. I just took it down when we were done. <laughs> Poor guy before me lost yeah. his arm. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I got all these scans and. And then like, man, as much as I say, I need a new doctor because he discounts a lot of things. He was like, he got back to me in like two days. Yeah. And he was like, you're clear. I remember we were in our first chat, we were talking about how you and your friend have this like kind of not necessarily packed, but this agreement of, hey, if we're ever feeling down. My buddy and I, um, 
we like renewed our firearms license together. And, uh, so we did the, like the weekend course and we were chatting and we both, um, we both have had those melancholy issues <laughs> in the sure. past and, uh, have both like reached that limit. And, uh, he has talked to me about one of his instances. I talked to him about my instance and we just kind of said like, you know, we, we just kind of chatted and we're like, you know, if you ever feel shitty tell me hmm. i'll come get your rifle i feel shitty you come get mine and then there's no access to anything and i mean i wouldn't if i was the interesting thing about this is if i was still in that mindset i don't think i'd even own one i didn't renew my firearms license for like five years right. because of that right. and i was just like nope i want to wait until i'm in a good place. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm in a good place and I have help and I have none of those thoughts anymore or anything, I was like, awesome. I will once again, right. Own a firearm. Um, so it was important for us to have that outlet, but I mean, it's not just with, with him and I, it's not just the, like the firearms aspect of it, mm -hmm. but it's the first call on the roster kind of deal. I'll just fire him a text. and be like, you got a, you got time for a coffee or you got time for a beer or you got time for a call. Right. And uh, we always just like make time. It's like the the drop it and go kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I think the firearms aspect of it is like yes, it's just, it's responsible and it's but it's not the key component, right? The key component is to say that, um, hey, like I'm human. We go through stuff. I've been through stuff. I've been in this place before, and I know that I like do better having this support system and yeah. like having that acknowledgement. So there isn't that stigma around like oh man, I'm getting sad. I, I don't want to bring it up to someone. It's like, no, I, I, that happens and it's okay. And it's, I need to talk to someone because it helps. One of the greatest things like for me, um, with any, like with my experience, as far as mental health goes, is talking to others that have gone through it and others that are willing to talk. And I think like, uh, I didn't really talk about it with anybody until a friend opened up about an experience he had um, and I just sat there and listened hmm. and we sat in a pub, uh, over, I think we had two beers in three and a half hours because we were just, he yeah. was telling me his story and we were talking about it and we were talking about, um, coping and how to like deal with it and how to process it and how to move forward and, and that kind of stuff. And I don't think it was until he opened up that I was like, what people can talk about this right. and still be normal. And that was like, that was only three years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I would always talk to anybody about like, people have questions about chemo and cancer and that, and that whole thing all the time, you know, family members going through it, whatever. And that to me is just like, a, mm, yep, I've been on that ride. I can tell you, uh, it's not worth the lineup. So, right. you know, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, but with mental health, I was just like, nope. Mm. that's nobody's business and i think that's a generational thing too mm. like like my parents no you don't talk about that right people think you're crazy right and right. and um and talking to him about that and then talking to him a lot about mental health and about how i was feeling and he was like one of the first people i opened up to mm. um and that was that realization that you can have 
a real conversation that has meaning, that gives you support, that helps you deal or helps you cope or helps you progress or process, however you want to word it, it moves you forward. Mm -hmm. And seeing the immediate help that gave me, and he's not a licensed fucking professional. Right. He's a buddy and we were having a beer and we are having a real conversation. And he's being vulnerable with you. Yeah. And, and honest to yeah. what's, what he's experienced. Yeah. And, and a, like a completely sober conversation, not a 2.30 AM at the right. end of the back alley being like, I love you, man. This is so great. Yeah. You mean yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was literally just like two people talking very seriously about the end of their lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that was the start of it. And I realized with, with his help and with that conversation and, and a multitude of conversations we've had since then, that with all of the experiences that I've had, uh, you know, bad experience or traumatic experience, they are yeah. good experiences mm-hmm. because I can help others move through or I can help myself process stuff way more than I used to. Um, and, and I think like having, one friend that was the start of it he Mm. was the one friend that helped me realize it was okay Mm -hmm. to talk about that stuff and i didn't have to just sit bottled up because when i was younger so i lost my dad in 2006 so i would have maybe just turned 27 i guess and uh wow i uh had a really bad breakup like the week before he died too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had like two massively traumatic events very close together and a buddy of mine uh, who I've known uh, since like 1999 uh, came over and he just sat with me in my condo while I lost my fucking mind. And he literally just sat there. We didn't talk about anything. I just freaked out and didn't know what to do. And I just had this like breaking point And, you know, he sat there and at the time he for sure helped. Like I had no negative or self-harm thoughts. I just didn't know where to go from there. I had lost this girl that I was in love with. I had lost my dad. It was all like right Mm -hmm. there. I didn't know what I was going to do after I graduated now because my dad died like a week before I graduated. So it was just like one of these timing things. And then, you know, we did, we just went out and got fucking blackout drunk. And that solved the issue for the day. True. But not permanently. Right. I had a lot of issues after that. Yeah. Uh, but I just buried them and I just dealt with it. And I never really like, I never really had that chance to grieve uh, for my dad because my mom had lost her partner of, you know, 30 mm-hmm. plus years. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother had lost his dad and our family had lost like this fucking beautiful man who always did everything for everybody. And so I was just like, okay, well, my mom needs my help and I can't be a like worthless piece of shit also grieving. So suck it up. And then I just like, I just didn't process his death for like years. And then like the one time it finally, like when I got sick and it just like clicked, you know, 10 years later, uh, that was a disaster because I hadn't processed it. So now again, like you look back at that and a whole bunch of other stuff. And this comes with just, I think like traumatic response or traumatic events and learning how to like process them. Now I, if I see something forming, I'm like, huh, I'm going to actually address this instead of bottling it up and bottling it up until you're like, well, uh, I'm not getting up off this floor now for a week. Yeah. Well, it's, and it sounds like, yeah, you have that situation where you're like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be here for other people. 
I'll help other people and whatever that like, you know, it's a positive intention. It's I'll be here for my mom in this capacity as her son, not as a grieving son, but as her son, yeah. I'll be here for my brother as his brother, not as his brother, like grieving brother. Um, I don't want to be a drag and like, I'll put this away and I'll like, I'll keep it locked in because no one needs this shit and yeah. I'll just like handle it. And it's as well intentioned as it is. It's that like continual pressure that keeps like building up, right? Yeah. And and processing it is so brutal, but it's that it's the actual action that needs to kind of precede the event, you know, and not just deal with it. And and I think like even the language around that can sometimes be so funny. It's like, hey, just deal with it what you mean bottle it up and like implode later cool yeah i'll come to work five days after finding out that stage one cancer you know yeah like it's it's brutal and yeah yeah that and i don't know if it's society or social influence or tv movies whatever you want to call it but yeah there's this like Insane expectation that everyone should process everything in the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, use maternity leave for an example. Oh, you had a baby? Cool. You got to be back in six months. Yeah. Or whatever it is, eight months. It's like, well, some people are ready to go back to work two months later. Other people need a fucking year and a half. Everyone mm -hmm. processes everything differently. Everyone heals differently. Everyone is able to adapt differently to different situations. Yeah. People struggle with one thing while other people's excel at another. So <laughs> it's just like this, yeah, this stigma of like, Oh, you'll just, you'll just have to deal with it. And you're like, well, how do I start dealing with it? I need to figure out how to process You this. guys don't even talk about it, let alone that I'm like, you guys don't even talk about it, let alone give me permission to like yeah. as a society. And it's tough because a lot of that comes from like being kind, like you said, to other people to say, Hey, you know, you, you this is whatever journey this is on. Like I'm here to be present with you. And like, this is, I, I'm, I'm not going to like, label what your experience is going to be, but like take what you need and like, you know, I'm here for you. And I think if you can give that kindness to yourself, like then you can start giving it to other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah you definitely <clears throat> once, and I say you all the time, but I should say I, cause every experience is different. But uh, I think once I was able to recognize what, I needed, mm. even though it was through someone else, right? Not using me, but um, through someone else talking to me about something, then I was able to realize what path I could take to sort of start my own journey. As there is a point where it's like, this is great that we're talking about it, but there's a point where you need to begin to do the work with someone who's trained and like, you know, is a good match for you and has like the professional authority to help guide you through it, has the tools, has the skill set, because like your friends can't be, you know, the full, the pharmacy for your mental health. Like you need those social interactions. You need that support. You need the openness and the lot, like the, there can't be that stigma amongst them, but like, you still need to get support and help in the same way that your friends are not going to be the ones that diagnose you with, you know, whatever you're, you, you're not going to go to your friends for a colonoscopy. Uh, you're not going to go to your friends for your full therapy session. Right. 
yeah that element still needs to kind of be there right yeah 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 it's uh <clears throat> it's important to have access to like trained mental health professionals uh when you are ready for that for mm -hmm. that stage and i think some of the issue can be that well <clears throat> someone may feel that their issue isn't worth talking about because it's stupid it's little it's something sure. dumb it's whatever but for whatever that was for that day that's what triggered them into that mindset and people need to realize however small you think it is in comparison to someone else um you still need to talk about it and it, this is more like it's more relatable for people with like uh physical pain or physical disabilities they're like oh no 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 i only like have a bad hip i don't want to complain about sure, walking sure. because that person doesn't have a leg or a hip so right. i'm not going to talk to them about how bad my hip is yeah. because you know, statistically we're told that that person's just going to say, shut the fuck up. At least you have a leg. Right. And right. you're like, well, they're not always going to be like that. What you need to realize is the pain you are in is a valid pain for you. And you need to discuss that with someone. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are dismissive of their own struggle or their own feelings because it's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm super bummed because my dog died and I don't know what to do, but I don't want to talk to him because he lost his dad and his mom in a car crash seven right. years ago. And that's nothing compared to fuck you. That's something like to you, that's something. So you yeah. talk about yeah. it. Like don't gauge your shit on other people's shit. No, gauge it on how you feel internally. And then you, you figure out who you can talk to. Comparative suffering is not a thing. And like you, yeah, you can't compare your story. You can't compare your like experience, your feelings to like what you think other people are feeling. And I think in the same way, like, um, ironically, it's kind of funny that you're like, oh, I had stage two, you know, like, yeah, and, I did. I did then, too, but didn't then, I? But then we, but then like, <laughs> like, I think through the, like, you know, the through line of that though, is that you're seeing that like, that maybe was good coping at that time, but then it bottled up and became something else. Right. It's like that maybe at that time was like, Hey, this is stage two. It's okay. Like whatever, you know, it's like, saw that go through stage four, um, all this kind of stuff, but yeah. it's like it's still your experience. It's still your journey. And, you know, how do you process that at the same? And sometimes it's like helpful, you know, it's, it's so complicated. Sometimes it's helpful to do that, but yeah. Um, yeah. You don't <laughs> want to diminish it to the point where like you don't go get help. I think that's the yeah. thing, right. You want to acknowledge that it's there. And if you think it's not a, a big deal, you make that like internally. And if you think it can, you can find some hope by comparing Sure, but like, yeah, but don't you be, still need to acknowledge it. Yeah, don't be fucking dismissive. Yeah. There's a parallel too with like discussing like your trauma, discussing hardship, discussing like having difficult like, uh, you know, entanglements with thinking about suicide and it's you're bringing light into that situation. You're, you're like keeping, you know, these things when we feel shameful about them, they grow. Right. Yeah. And that same way of like being kind doesn't sound like something that should be significant. And it doesn't sound like just talking about it should be significant, but they are significant things. Right. You don't need the, um, you don't need these like huge acts to be able to change someone's life because 
I mean, and I think like in the parallel to your story of moving back to Calgary, it's, um, it develops over time. It's setting these like slow things over time, these, these better changes, like inviting that light in, speaking about it, building that support group. It's not like one big dramatic change out. Right. And in that same way, um, to be kind and make an impact doesn't need to be this dramatic thing. No, like a large dramatic action or a large dramatic response to something often is unsustainable Mm. to continue on small changes over a long period of time are easier for your, for your fucking brain to adjust to. Yeah. And I think that's part of it too, is like, I used to see it, um, as like a weakness, like talking about how you felt like you were just like, no, it's stupid. Just suck it up. And you just sit at home and you just, whatever you play a video game or you go (laughs) to the, gun range and you break stuff and you're just like, eh, that feels better. Uh, now it's like, I can, I, I like I'm self-aware enough that it wasn't a weak, the weakness was actually like hiding it. So now I'll talk to anybody about anything that they want to know. I think you've been so like, um, one, one thing that's been like really ad- admirable, I think, and like really like wonderful in this conversation is that like, whenever your dad has come up, you like take that time um to say something like sweet and <laughs> yes now you're crying and yeah, it's not I'm just me <laughs> the thing the thing that i think is i'm going to talk on mic the thing that i think is so like admirable about that and um yeah it's just so like it's such an admirable quality it's something that i think like is is so like telling of how like um this is the this is the problem where you can't talk about but how pure of a person you are. Um but like yeah, the last question I ask is what are you grateful for? And whether it's that uh, this that question or it's like something in terms of like a memory of your dad, whichever one, like just to just it's yours. The floor is yours. I think like I don't know. This answer is different every day. Every day I'm grateful for something else. I used to look, <clears throat> I used to look for a reason to, we'll say, get out of bed to keep it mm-hmm. uh, positive. I honestly, like, I don't, I don't know, man. I think all of my experiences, shitty and positive, I would have to be grateful for. Like, it's unbelievable that all these different things, trauma and reward alike, uh, or positive experience alike, uh, have helped me shape myself into, or have helped shape me into whatever this is. Right. And I think, um, becoming more self-aware and seeing flaws and seeing strengths too. I find it difficult to like process self-strength. Like I am very, again, dismissive uh, of like what others consider strengths. I think uh, I, I am grateful for a lot of things, man, a lot. I don't think I could narrow it down without this being a like fucking 12 parter that everyone bails after part two (laughs) on today's lesson. We're grateful (laughs) for the four hole in ones I've had. (laughs) (laughs) Just like uh, that guy's a compulsive liar. No, no, no. It's been four. It was four. I was great at one time. Um, no, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, uh, like 
an interesting thing, memory of my dad uh, was him and I were supposed to play golf. This was when he was going through chemo. We had already moved here. I had enrolled to SAIT in the fall to go to photojournalism school. Uh, he was doing his chemo. He was still working, still commuting to Toronto. Stage four, fucking chemo, still working in Toronto, flying back and forth uh, every <laughs> every week. Um, and it was in the summer and we, were, we had a tea time at Elbow Springs and because uh, it was right by like where they lived. Mm. And um, I would just drive out and uh, meet him at the house and then we'd go to the golf course. And my grandpa... Um, I, I can't remember. He ended up in the hospital. One of those like memories where I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck it was from, but he was in the hospital. And my mom wanted to go to the hospital and my dad didn't want to just send my mom because it was her dad. And uh, so he said, oh, you go, you still go. And uh, he said, uh, we'll play again next week or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. I played a lot. Like I don't have, a, I didn't used to have a lot of friends that played golf being like a snowboarder and that kind of stuff. Like those type of people don't typically golf. Right. They do now. They didn't then. And, uh, so I just basically threw headphones, um, in, and my, uh, iPod mm. <laughs> in, in my golf bag. Nice throwback. Yeah. Yeah. I threw it in the trunk and I, uh, Oh shit. It was a mini disc player. It wasn't even an iPod. Cause that was, uh, that was like Oh five right, and I was right, still right. rocking mini discs in Oh five. Um, so anyway, I like showed up, uh, to the golf course and, uh, they had paired us with another couple. And, uh, and then when he canceled, there was a walk on that came and I said to them, like, do you mind if I play from the tips? And because I had just stopped like, playing like prior to moving back to Calgary, I was hitting a thousand balls a day and playing a number of times a day and was just like at the peak of my like golf ability. And they were like, Oh yeah, no problem. And so, uh, we played a few holes and, uh, by like the seventh hole, they weren't even talking to me. And, uh, I just threw my headphones in and I just played this round and I, I called my dad in between like the ninth and 10th hole and uh they were still at the hospital and uh, he said how's the round going and i said i can't believe you're not here and uh he was like oh that bad and i was like i like i am nine under after nine holes i am playing the best round i've ever had in my life (laughs) oh man he just laughed he's like well do you think you can like actually finish the round like that i was like <laughs> fuck no i should have blown up like eight holes ago right and uh so we chatted uh for a bit until like we like we caught up with the group in front of us anyway and uh so i like hung up the phone i put my headphones back in and i used to literally just run them up the back of my shirt mm. and then just throw the headphones in and uh <laughs> the first ball right into the fucking water. <laughs> I just started laughing. Right. And I was like, you'd be fucking kidding me. And I like double bogeyed 10. I was like, well, there we go. And uh, it was just like a Yikes. whole bunch of, yeah, a whole bunch of up and downs. The three I played with still never really talked to me the rest of the round. Like they would, you know, say, oh, nice shot. Oh, whatever. Right. And I was just like, 
okay. So I just lived with my like shitty mini disc playlist, whatever it happened to be, uh, in, in my thing. And, uh, I ended up, uh, I ended up 11 under after 18 holes. I still have the scorecard and, uh, you know, I, my dad and I, uh, hung out afterwards. Like I went and met them and, uh, he kept the scorecard. Oh, and then I took it back <laughs> when he died. <laughs> it was in one of his golf bags. Oh my um, but it was crazy because he like he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And in my head, like when we used to play golf when he was sick, he wasn't sick anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it was normal. Mm-hmm. So one of my like last funny memories with him, he wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for that round. Yeah. And that like six minute conversation in, you know, 120 feet from the ninth to the 10th hole. Yeah. And then I never played that well ever again in my whole life. That was like, that mm. was pinnacle. That was the mm. peak. Uh, was, was that round. Uh, and then that would have been Oh five. So he died the next April and, uh, we never really, I just stopped playing. Mm. Um, but I'm grateful for, for all of those lessons. Yeah. In life, not golf. This man wasn't even on the course with me. He couldn't make it mm-hmm. because he chose to be a fucking amazing husband and son-in-law mm-hmm. and went to a hospital where he sat in a room where like an old unconscious man was just laying there anyway and wouldn't have known if he was there or not. But my mom needed the support. So instead of coming golfing with his kid, he went to a shitty ass hospital mm-hmm. to sit, even though he had already been in hospitals a ton right. on his chemo stuff. But that was what he did because he always made the right choice. Mm-hmm. And he still made time for you. Yeah. Yeah. That guy worked like, oh man, I don't know. Like my younger brother and I were talking about this. Like you, you remember him as a kid, like he was out of the house by six and he wasn't back till six, mm. five days a week, but he was always present. And he was mm. always there and we went on vacations and he always made time and he worked so hard to give us that like life that he did. And, you know, like financially being secure and as a kid being able to <laughs> have tennis lessons and golf lessons and be sure. able to ski and play hockey and stuff that you don't even think about as a kid costing money or just like mm. sports. Right. And now as an adult, I see friends that have their kids in hockey and I'm like, you pay how much to have your fucking Mm. kids in hockey? (gasps) Did hockey cost money when I was a kid? Oh my God. Mom, dad, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't make it to the NHL. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's just like, he always made that right decision and whether or not like he ever knew it, like it wasn't just like, I saw those decisions and I saw that person and I don't know, grateful for what it became, mm-hmm. which is what's crying into this microphone on the other side of you right now. <laughs> yeah, man, it's uh it's it's one of those things like, yeah, there's there's too much to be to be grateful for, as much as I was not grateful for anything for a long time. Yeah. And as much as I was mad at the world for that experience with him, losing mm-hmm. him, and then you know, uh, having the most successful year of my life, uh, and then being diagnosed Mm. and I got diagnosed in November and I had finally like 
as far as I was concerned then made it. Hmm. And, uh, by, uh, October, uh, of that year, I had like tripled my previous year's revenue. Oh. And I was like, fuck yes, finally, this is amazing. Cancer? What? I have to take a year right. off? I was mad, man. I was so mad mm. because I lost everything again. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was like unable to see the things that I am now grateful for. And yeah, that like that year sucked and there were a lot of sacrifices and it was a life experience. But now I'm grateful for it. I'd probably still be a sack of shit if I hadn't like got cancer and I was making small changes after my dad died to be a better person and to be more of like he was to other people. But it's easy to like slide back on that scale. And then after I got sick, I was just like, nope, going to make a a baby difference. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm as much as like, you know, I shouldn't be grateful for that cancer because it scared the shit out of me and wrecked like a bunch of years of my life. Um, I am grateful for it because it turned me into the person that was crying into this microphone in front of you. And I think like eight years ago, there's no fucking way I would have done something like this. I would have just been like, no man, that's stupid. Yeah. And now I'm just like, no, no, no. Everyone needs to see that everyone's fucked. Like there's not a person in the way that person. Oh, they're perfect. No, they are so fucked. Everyone's fucked. Like everyone's got, everyone's going through something. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, can you show up? Can you be present and, uh, for yourself and for others? And yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, well, it's just my old be fucking nice. Be nice. (laughs) Don't be fucking nice. (laughs) Not just be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a TikTok now. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Be dismissive. Um, Thank you so much. For no, man. Thank you. I'm making sorry. Making this time and um, like <laughs> just being so gracious with it and and sharing this experience and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I ate three hours of your day here. No, no. You. This is gonna be like a nine parter, so people pay attention. <laughs> you, um, you, you. Honestly, you gave you gave so much and um, like and like I've learned a lot through this, and I just feel so privileged to be able to like um, be. Uh, be able to to hear your story and to to like get to get to learn from you and to honestly just like i think see how um how you're like uh you're 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 a good dude down to the core man and uh and it's just it's it's really like a privilege to be able to spend time with you so oh well thanks man i uh, appreciate that you would invest this much time in little old me no likewise We didn't have time to include my guest's story about their friend who was motivated to get a colonoscopy because of my guest's story about their journey with cancer. His friend got a colonoscopy. They found stage one cancer. Um, The cancer was removed and this simple screening procedure saved his life. And so this is just a gentle reminder to go ahead, have a conversation with your parents, have a conversation with your aunts and uncles about your family's history with colon cancer, and then go ahead and talk with your doctor about screening for colon cancer. Depending on your history and a few other factors, screening may be just as simple as a take-home test. All right, here's a sneak peek of next week's episode. Yeah, there's already so much pressure for women in in birthing situations to, you know, like deliver this 
perfect child and, you know, like breastfeed right away and everything needs to go perfect or it's a bad reflection on you as a mom. And then, of course, if something happens and your baby ends up in NICU, you I've had so many moms like come up to me with tears in their eyes and just needing that validation. Like, was there anything else I could have done right? Or, like I tried to hold them in as long as I could. And, you know, like these are it's just so sad because there's I think there just needs to be more education around these things. And we we try to give them that support as well, that there's nothing they, they could have done. And again, like it's just it's a whole host of factors that are completely out of the mom's control.